You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Now we look to our first lesson, our first scripture reading this morning. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And that begins on page 1016, 1016 of your pew Bible. And you are always welcome to take a Bible home if you do not have one of your own. Let that be a gift from us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And now let's stand together for the reading of the gospel. If you still have a Bible in hand, we're going to turn back to the gospel of Luke. It's a few pages to the left, and we're going to go to Luke chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse 44. Friends, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning to you, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. And by way of orientation, we are in the season of Eastertide. Easter is not just a single day. It's a whole 50-day season. And during the season of Eastertide, we ask ourselves questions like, what does Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, mean for my life right now, in the here and the now? Those of us who uh, identify as Christians, which is not everybody in the room, right? Some of you do, some of you don't. But for those who do, we're pretty used to the idea that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has something to do with eternity and with salvation. We may not be quite as used to the idea that the resurrection of Christ from the dead transforms the way we live right now, today, like this day, today, not hypothetically today, just today. And to help us explore this question, we're taking it with us to the book of 1 Peter, this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, but he was writing to people who were not writing to people who were living as culturally marginalized citizens in the great Roman Empire, writing to people who were were a minority, who felt themselves to be relatively culturally powerless, and who did not witness Jesus' life or miracles or death or resurrection, who had to take somebody else's word for it. In other words, people like us. And Peter is writing to them to give them encouragement. And thus far, as we've explored this book of 1 Peter, we've talked about resurrection hope, Resurrection holiness, resurrection suffering, resurrection relationships, and today, resurrection stewardship. Resurrection stewardship. As we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so has anybody ever asked you to take care of their stuff for them before? Or have you maybe been on the other end of the equation where you've asked someone else to take care of your stuff? I've had both of these experiences. I've been on both sides of the equation before. And I've had it more or less go sometimes well and sometimes not so well. And so here are two quick stories about taking care of somebody else's stuff. Story number one. When I was a junior in high school, I went to this thing called prom. Some of you go to prom. Prom is sometime, prom is awesome for some people. It is not awesome for other people. It's a very stressful experience for a lot of folks. But I went to prom. I asked a girl to go with me. She said yes. Check. Okay, got the first part. Um, And I didn't have a car, so I didn't have a mode of transportation to get to and from prom. So I did what any reasonable 16-year-old would do. I asked my grandfather if I could borrow his brand-new Cadillac, like his has 200 miles on it, just drove it off like the lot, Cadillac. And my grandfather, being the overly indulgent and generous man that he is, said yes, which is crazy. He should not have said yes, because I was a new driver. And so he says yes, he drives the car from Fairfax down to Charlottesville, and I borrow his car and I take my date to the prom. Two things went wrong. Thing number one, my date wore a dress covered in glitter. And the seat, the passenger seat, was this like leather mesh, okay? So not only did the glitter go, you know, all over kind of that passenger area of the car, but it sank down into the mesh of the leather. And after prom, I tried to vacuum it out and clean it up. And guess what? It did not come out. 
And every time you sat down in the passenger seat, this like poof of glitter would come up. And it did this for like a year afterwards. That was thing number one. Thing number two was I scratched the side of the car as I was trying to park it because I was a new driver and I was not that good. So my grandfather entrusted his brand new Cadillac to my care and I returned it to him with a dent on the side and glitter all over the inside. Not a great grandson. Story number two. A couple years ago, a wonderful young teenage boy who lives in our neighborhood came to me and said that he wanted to start a lawn care business. And he asked if he could borrow my trailer. I have this old trailer that's been sitting in our driveway that my wife wants out of our driveway. So this is a double win. I can help my neighbor start a business. I can get rid of the trailer that my wife doesn't like. So he borrows the trailer and here's what he does. Not only does he go ahead and start a successful business that like serves lots of people and also like, you know, is like a good business for him, but also he fixes the trailer. The wiring for the taillights didn't work. The ramp that like goes open and closed was like bent and rusted and kind of falling apart. And he and his dad actually rewired the taillights and like put new boards on the, they like fixed the whole thing up. And when I got it back at the end of the summer, it was nicer than when I gave it to them. Question for the class, who is a better steward? <laughs> teenage me or teenage Owen Godfrey, <laughs> right? <laughs> well done, Owen. So the point is all of us have had these moments of being on both sides of this equation, entrusting our stuff to other people, having other people entrust their stuff to us. And this dynamic, this relational dynamic of caring for other people's things is actually a major theme of the story of the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that. So the story of the Bible begins with God entrusting creation, the world, into the care of human beings. We call this the Imago Dei, the image of God. What it means to bear God's image as human beings is to be something of a vice regent, a steward, caring for creation on behalf of the creator. But of course, through what Christian theologians call the fall into sin, this relational dynamic gets warped and twisted and all kinds of bent out of shape where humanity begins to consume creation instead of stewarding it and caring for it. Then God takes on human flesh and Jesus enters the scene, not only demonstrates in his life what stewardship looks like and is supposed to be like, but also through his death and through his resurrection, he gives us this redemptive power to truly become stewards once more. And the promise at the very end of the story of the Bible is of one day humanity restored to its good and rightful place of stewardship under God, over the world, forever and ever and ever. That's the story of the Bible in regards to taking care of other people's stuff. <laughs> and here in our text this morning, we have 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to draw out one little phrase that is actually the theme of the whole thing, okay? And it's this phrase, to be a good steward of God's varied graces, to be a good steward of God's varied graces. And what I'd like to do is explore the dynamic of humans as stewards versus humans as consumers. Humans as stewards versus humans as consumers. And then to simply ask the question, what does grace have to say about that? Okay, let's start with humans as stewards. What is stewardship? We need a working definition for stewardship. Some of you have heard that word before, others of you have not. We need a working definition. Um, some of you, I'm, I'm gonna quote from Tim Keller and use his definition for Christian stewardship. And I'm going to do that because some of you might know that on Friday, Tim Keller passed away. And not all of you uh, will know this because we're all kind of still getting to know each other, but I probably can't overstate 
the level of significance and influence that Tim Keller's leadership and ministry has had on me, not only as a pastor, but also just as a human, as a man. And I'm deeply grateful for him, and I just want to kind of take a moment to honor him and to honor his legacy. Um, So Tim Keller, wise as he is, has this definition of Christian stewardship. A steward is a person who has been entrusted with and who manages another's resources according to their visions and values. Each of us was created for stewardship by God. A steward is both a ruler with authority to govern resources and a slave accountable to the owner of those resources. The New Testament calls Christians caretakers of God's truths and gifts, even God's grace, parentheses, 1 Peter chapter 4, this text, this verse. So Tim Keller, when asked to give a definition of what it means to be a steward, would look to 1 Peter chapter 4 as a good starting place for talking about what it means to be entrusted by God to care for God's stuff. So stewardship is managing God's possessions according to God's vision and values. Today is Ascension Sunday. Some of you might not know that, but if you look at the front cover of your liturgy, you'll see a painting depicting uh, the ascension of Christ. I'm just pointing this out because this is a good and right day for us to pause and contemplate together. What does it mean that Christ ascended to the throne and reigns as king? And what does it mean for us to be a part of that kingdom, for us to steward on behalf of the king? You know, Jesus, during his life and ministry, told a lot of stories about stewardship. You might think about the parable he told about the master and the servants of the vineyard. Some of you might know that story. A lot of you probably don't. There's a master who goes away on a trip. He entrusts his vineyard, his farm, to a group of servants. And their job is to care for that property and all the resources of it on behalf of the master until he returns. Now, in this particular parable, they don't care for it very well. When the master returns, there is judgment. You might think about another parable Jesus told about the parable of the talents. Again, a master goes away on a journey, entrusts varying amounts of resources to three different servants. They steward those resources to, with varying degrees of success and faithfulness. And when the master returns, there are rewards and there's also judgment. In other words, the dynamic that Jesus is constantly pressing upon his listeners is reminding them of where they sit in the order, where they are in creation, God as master, Creation as God's possession entrusted to the care of humanity. Fully a fourth of Jesus' parables and teaching were about stewardship. So I made this joke in the first service and nobody left. If Jesus was your pastor, a quarter of the sermons would be about stewardship. You, I got one person. Okay, yeah. And of course, the joke is that like nobody actually wants Jesus to be their pastor because you'd be like, that guy talks about money too much, Right? <laughs> But Jesus is always bringing our attention back to this because it is a significant aspect of our life. Those of us who are parents of kids know this dynamic well because if you're a parent of young children, at some point in your household, you've probably said something along the lines of, you know, you know kids or child, you know, I want you to take care of this thing. Remember, it's not yours, but it is your responsibility, Right? Parents know what it means to like manage this dynamic. Sometimes as adults, though, we forget that we are the children in relation to God. And God is continually saying to us, child, this is my possession, but I'm entrusting it to your care. It is your responsibility to care for it well. We see this like biblical vision for a stewardship economy play out all throughout the story of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
In the Old Testament, we see it in the nation of Israel, entrusted with land, entrusted with crops, entrusted with resources, even entrusted with military and political power. And they are to steward all of those things well on behalf of God. And you see the nation of Israel go off the rails when they start to believe that those things are their own and not God's, right? That's like the meta story of the Old Testament is that dynamic. (laughs) Whose stuff is this? And then you get to the New Testament and you see the church and you see the church entrusting everything they have uh, to, um, or rather stewarding everything they have on behalf of God for the good of others. You see early Christians bringing all of their material resources and laying them at the feet of the apostles as a way of saying, here's everything that God has given me, all of the varied graces that God has entrusted to my care. Now, how can we as the church steward these things well? And so it's worth kind of turning the lens on ourselves just for a moment and asking the question, what has God entrusted to your care? What has he given you to steward? What are the varied graces that God has given to you? And of course, if that seems a little bit hard to answer, it's because it's such a big category. It's comprehensive, isn't it? I was joking with somebody in between the services and they were sort of saying, hey, like, can you give me some categories? And I was like, that's actually kind of hard. It's everything, (laughs) All the things are God's varied graces given to you. Let's begin simply with your existence. Your existence is part of God's very, it's the first grace. Like the first grace that God gives you is the grace of being alive. Did you bring yourself into being? You did not. You received existence as a gift, which means that the time that you have, the minutes, the hours, the weeks, the years, these these are temporalities that are entrusted to your care and you are to steward them well. Your minutes and hours, your existence is something that you steward. You're also given relationships. Some of us have an abundance of healthy, great relationships. Others of us seem to have this abundance of dysfunctional relationships, but all of us have relationships to steward. These are varied graces of God entrusted to our care. Sometimes we want them, sometimes we don't, but they are ours to manage. They are our responsibility. So all all of you, all of you, have a variety of gifts and talents. God made you you, and he gave you certain gifts and abilities that are innate to you. You didn't create them. You didn't generate them. You do have a responsibility to either develop them or neglect them, but they are part of God's varied grace to you. You've also been given a measure of resource, treasure, right? Part of that is in money. Part of it also is the home you have. Part of it is the reputation and influence that you leverage. But all of us have a measure of resource entrusted to our care. And the story of the Bible tells us that that has been entrusted to our care temporarily for a season, and we are to steward it well on behalf of the owner, which is God himself, right? I could keep going. We're just sort of starting to name here. What I, the hope that I think we all have in the room right now is to get to the point where we see everything as part of God's varied grace to us and therefore realize that our stewardship is actually our entire lives. It's a life of stewardship. It's not just stewardship is not one part of your life. It's the whole thing. Now, when you get to the end of your days, uh, the Bible promises that those who are in Jesus will hear from God, well done, good and faithful, what? Servant. Now, If you listen to the parables of Jesus, what he's saying is, well done, good and faithful steward. That's the the implication. That's the message there. Well done, servant. 
You have taken good care of the things that I've trusted to you. Now, come and share in the master's abundance. Now, it's worth noting as well that we don't steward things in our beliefs. We don't steward things necessarily in our desires. We steward things in our actions. Stewardship is an embodied act, not a doctrine, okay? So a lot of what I've said so far is just basic theology that a lot of Christians believe. However, it is not a habitualized practice that most people live out, okay? And there's a big difference. Um, a really snarky, sarcastic way to, to say it would be like, you don't do stewardship in your heart. <laughs> you do it in your life. <laughs> um, and those of you who are parents of young children will know this because you can just imagine how silly a conversation it would be if you were sitting around the kitchen table and as a parent, you said to your kids, now, will you help clear the dishes from your table? And the kid were to say, dad, mom, I've cleared the dishes in my heart. And as a parent, you would say, that doesn't count. <laughs> That's not a thing, <laughs> right? You have to actually get up and do it. But what if the kid said, oh, but, but I, I think I would be doing that with the wrong attitude because then I'd be trying to earn my status in this family by clearing dishes. And I'd really just like to accept my status in this family based on grace and not by works. So I'm not gonna clear the table. As a parent, you'd be like, again, love you. That's not a thing. <laughs> it's something you do with your body. And you can go through all kinds of mental and theological gymnastics to wiggle out of this, but it is a life of stewardship that you are called to, not a belief in stewardship that you are called to. Or even snarkier and sarcastic way to say it that's probably gonna get me in trouble is you don't give money in your heart, right? <laughs> the dollars are real. <laughs> they're not imaginary. You don't believe in them. They're real. Stewardship does not happen in your heart. Now, we're setting all of this up because what most of us tend to live out, at least for me, maybe I'll just speak autobiographically and not of you and of myself, what I tend to live out is not a life of stewardship, but rather a life of consumership. I tend to live a life of consumerism. Now, this is why the Apostle Peter writes this particular part of the letter the way he does. Did you notice that part earlier in the text where he writes, what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Some of you are, read that or you heard that and you thought, oh yeah, those are like all the things Christians are always against, right? Like the list of bad stuff you're not supposed to do. It's way deeper than that. What Peter is setting up is a difference between stewardship and consuming. This is a life of consumption. You are called out of that into a life of stewardship. Adam Smith writes in his book, The Wealth of Nations, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production, which is an enormous statement. And I would contend that our entire like, economy is predicated upon belief in that statement. Consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. In other words, the goal of all of like the work and labor and stuff of your life is to consume things. Now, you and I live in a very interesting moment in history because if we were to time travel far enough, all the way back to the first century in which this text was originally written, you know what you would encounter? You would encounter this very interesting phenomenon where people would ascribe their thoughts and their feelings and their impulses 
to deities, to like some other god or goddess. So if you're like a first century Greek person wandering around the Mediterranean, when you have a thought, when like something occurs to you, you wouldn't just think of that thought as yours. You would think of it as having been like put into your mind by a god or a goddess. So if you're feeling particularly courageous, Apollo is calling you to be courageous. If you're feeling particularly affectionate and romantic, Athena is calling you to fall in love. This is what it means to be like a first century uh, person. Um, although now, we tend to think of our thoughts as exclusively and only ours, right? Because we're free. We're not superstitious like those idiots who lived long ago, right? And so uh, there's one uh, very funny author who writes, um, when ancient Greeks had a thought that occurred to them, it was either a god or a goddess giving them an order. Apollo was telling them to be brave. Athena was telling them to fall in love. Now people hear a commercial for sour cream potato chips and they rush out and buy it and they call it free will. At least the ancient Greeks were being honest. The idea being that there are ideas planted in your mind and in your consciousness from the outside that we then act on and live out. And to be honest is to simply acknowledge that dynamic. My thoughts and my cravings are not necessarily my own. I've been conditioned into them by someone or something. Consumerism is something that we practice. We are trained and conditioned in it. And so you might just imagine, just think with me for a moment, what forms the consumer imagination? What movies and TV shows and social medias and experiences and all sorts of things that are, we are surrounded by that form us and shape us into having this kind of consumer imagination where I look out in the world and I'm mostly scanning the world to figure out what can give me comfort or pleasure or distraction or happiness or entertainment. And when I find something I like, I move towards it. When I find something I don't like, I move away from it, right? And we think of this as normal, but I've been conditioned this way. Some of you might have seen the 2009 movie called The Joneses. It's a very disturbing movie. So I can't really recommend it, but it is, it is interesting. Uh, the premise of this movie is there is a fake family that moves into a neighborhood to do like subversive grassroots marketing. Here's the setup, okay? It's not a fake family because it's a movie. Like in the premise of the movie, it's a fake family. It's a man and a woman who are actors and like an actor and an actress, and they pretend to be husband and wife. Then they have two like teenage kids who pretend to be their kids, but they're all actors. And they move into a neighborhood, and their job is to make everybody else in the neighborhood feel insecure about their lifestyle. And they're to live such a seemingly happy life because of all the stuff they're buying that everybody else in the neighborhood starts buying the stuff too. Very disturbing. Um, and of course, what ends up transpiring throughout the course of the movie is that everybody around these people ends up just sinking deeper and deeper into anxiety and insecurity and debt. People get divorced, marriages fall apart, like families fall apart. It's just like wreckage and carnage and chaos because this one fake family moved in and made everybody else feel like they weren't consuming enough. Now, that's not what's happening in our neighborhoods, at least not to my knowledge, but it doesn't have to because I think we have an enemy who delights to pit us against each other and to help us notice what each other has that we don't have, right? They have a new car. I don't have a new car. They eat at the best restaurants. They send their kids to the best school. 
but they have a river house. Oh, but they go on amazing vacations. Oh, but they wear the stylish clothes. Like, but they, but they, but they, and on and on and on. And on we spiral around each other, just making each other feel insecure and anxious that we don't have enough. Now, the next quote is a little bit long. Hang in there. The capitalist and consumerist ethics are two sides of the same coin, a merger of two commandments. The supreme commandment of the rich is invest. The supreme commandment of the rest of us is buy. The capitalist consumerist ethic is revolutionary in another respect. Most previous ethical systems presented people with a pretty tough deal. They were promised paradise, but only if they cultivated things like compassion and tolerance and overcome craving and anger and restrained their selfishness. And that's too tough for most people. The history of ethics is a sad tale of wonderful ideals that nobody can live up to. <laughs> most Christians don't imitate Christ. Most Buddhists don't follow Buddha. <laughs> most Confucians would have caused Confucius to have temper tantrums. <laughs> In contrast, the new ethic promises paradise on the condition that the rich remain greedy and spend their time making more money and that the masses give up free reign to their cravings and passions and buy more and more. Most people today successfully live up to the consumerist capitalist ideal. This is the first religion in history whose followers actually do what they are told. Yikes. And so instead of stewards, we become consumers. And then we take that consumerist disposition and posture towards all of life. And you know where we bring it? We bring it right here. At least I do. Maybe you do too. Consuming God's varied graces, sampling church programs and teachings and music, consuming relationships, thinking about your relationship with your parents with a consumerist mentality. What do my parents have to offer me that I can consume and take? And where they offer me something I don't want and therefore I should reject because I don't want it. I'm not hungry for it. Consuming our relationships with our siblings or close friends. This is a friend or a sibling who can offer me something I want. This is someone who's offering me something I don't want. Therefore, they are toxic and I will have boundaries, right? All clever ways. Thinking of our spouses, husband and wife, as a relationship that we consume. Here's a relationship and what can they offer me? How can I consume these things from my spouse? And what is my spouse offering me that perhaps I don't want? And so many marriages get to this desperate place where both people have sucked each other dry and have nothing more to offer one another because they both have spent the years of their life together consuming each other, trying to satisfy that hunger. Consuming our talents. How can I leverage what I'm good at to get the biggest payoff and the biggest reward? Consuming our resources. How can I maximize my own comfort and my own pleasure? I end up consuming my own existence. I end up just kind of eating myself. So hungry and yet never satisfied. This is why, listen if you can, this is why it is entirely possible to believe in stewardship and practice consumership, right? To believe that you're a steward, to believe that you're made in the image of God, believe that you're made to steward creation, and yet your embodied habits and your lifestyle are those of a consumer. What we're really hungry for is God. We have a God-sized appetite. As one theologian put it, what would it take to satisfy a human being? Answer, everything. <laughs> it would take everything 
to satisfy the human appetite. And what's more, just to take things all the way down to rock bottom, you're going to die. As I was grieving on Friday, Tim Keller's death, I realized this is one of the only times in my life that I have grieved the deaths of somebody I didn't really know. I met him one time. I shook his hand, but I didn't really know him, not at all. And yet, I find myself grieving and mourning someone that I didn't really know all that well. And realizing, as I contemplate his death, realizing that I too am going to die. And all of us are going to get to that point where our season of stewardship is at an end. And it's oh so brief. It's a vapor. And the longer you try to cling to it, the shorter it is. And what will God say to us at the very end of our lives? You know, I'm going to be a little bit creative and imaginative here, but if God says to the, to the stewards, well done, good and faithful servant, then the devil says to the rest of us, well done, good and faithful consumer. And those are the only two messages you might hear at the end of your life. And so where are we going to go? What would it take to satisfy a human being? It would take everything. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because you would think, if we were God, what would we do about this? Well, we would probably show up and just reprimand the entire human race for our ravenous appetite and hunger and tell us to get back on track, <laughs> right? At least that's what I tend to do with my own kids, right? When my kids aren't good stewards, what do I do? I show up and I yell and I use my loud dad voice, right? So what does God do? Does he show up and he yell? Does he use his loud God voice? God responds to our consumer economy by entering the consumer economy. In the incarnation of Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God takes on human flesh and enters the consumer economy and says the most surprising and unexpected thing that we would have ever expected God to say, which is, you're so hungry for everything, you are consuming the world, you're consuming your own existence, and the only thing that's gonna satisfy you is me. So here I am. You can consume me. Now be satisfied. So now you can become a steward once more. In the broken body of Jesus, in the blood of Jesus poured out, God says to us, you can consume me and I will satisfy you. And only once we are satisfied in Jesus can we then turn and become the stewards of all of God's varied graces. We can consume the grace of God given to us in Jesus and thus steward all of the other graces that he has bestowed upon us. Listen, I said earlier, you don't steward in your heart, and that's true, but you do steward from the heart. And if your heart is satisfied in Jesus, then you can become a true steward of all of the other varied graces of God. And so we'll just end by saying, just like consumerism is something you practice, so stewardship is also something you practice. The goal for today is not to become people who believe doctrines about stewardship, <clears throat> but to become people who actually practice what it means to truly be a steward of all of creation and everything that God has gracefully given to you. And so this is why the Apostle Peter ends this little section the way he does. Just like earlier, he talks about all of these practices of consuming. So he ends by naming just a few practices of stewarding. 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to each other without grumbling. Throw open the doors of your home and your resources and everything you have. In verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Leverage everything you've got for the good of each other. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just some examples to get you going. So, friends, consider all the graces that God has given to you. Resist consumerism. And if you need a starting place, our, ch our church leadership here at Redeemer has created and it's actually built into our membership process a starting place, okay? During the month of May, we talk about pledging. And we talk about pledging our time and our talent and our treasure. Our time committing ourselves to worshiping regularly, together gathering as the church on Sundays, and also gathering in small groups throughout the week, beginning to practice stewarding our calendars, stewarding our time together. And the starting place for that is gathering together as God's people. That's not the whole answer. It's just the starting place. And then there's a stewardship of talent. God has given you these remarkable gifts and resources. What are they? How might you leverage them? for the good, not just for your own good, but for other people's good. And so there's a way we, we ask and invite everyone to volunteer. Not just because we gotta run some stuff, like that's true, you gotta run some stuff, but it's way more important than that. It's actually about your own formation. How might you begin to think of your own talent as existing for the good of, of other people? And so there's a pledge of talent. And then finally, there's a pledge of treasure. This is a practice. It's something we do year over year recognizing that everything I've got, all my resources are actually a gift from God. And so I begin to practice. Now, I'm called to steward all of them. Do I just steward the like 9, 10, 11, 12% I give to Redeemer? No, I've got to steward the whole thing. Ah, but where will I begin? How will I start practicing? Well, I'll start practicing by giving back a portion to God through his church. And as I begin that practice, so my own heart is beginning to change. I'm beginning to become less of a consumer and more of a steward. Let's end here. Friends, we all long to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. And the commission for us in this text is not just to go forth and to try harder to be that or try harder to believe that, but rather to first bring our appetites and our hunger to Jesus and to be satisfied in him. And once we are fully satisfied in Jesus, to then from a place of contentment and satisfaction in God, to then be the end to steward everything that God has graced us with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your good and varied graces to us. Thank you for, Lord Jesus, the way that you have offered yourself to us. May we this morning turn our appetite to you and consume you and be satisfied in you so that we might steward everything you have given to us. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.